How do we measure the success of a church? This is a question that I've asked myself pretty often. It gnaws at me in my sense of integrity. There are the familiar stories that churches tell, stories that have really never quite done it for me. There are stories of churches that are winning when the pews are full, when the youth and children's programs are verdant and thriving. And then there are stories that look to business as their guide, stories that say we're healthy when everyone is consistently giving 10% of their income and the budget is stable. Or when we've got an abundance of willing participants eager to step into leadership roles or when our committees are producing plenty of programs populated by energized young people. We don't have committees, so we don't even have to worry about that one. There are stories that look to politics as our guide. Stories that say our success is judged by our power, our sway over the culture of a community or a whole nation. How well, this story asks, can we get them to follow our rules? Is marriage only an option between a man and a woman? Is abortion entirely outlawed? Are the liquor stores closed on Sundays? We know the familiar stories that churches are inclined to tell, but the question remains for us. How do we measure the success of a church? 2,500 years ago, Amos was obsessed with a similar question. He was dissatisfied with the familiar standards, and he offered a different kind of story, which was as true as it was unpopular. The prophet Amos woke with the vision still burning in his mind's eye. In his dream, God, the spirit of all truth and love, was personified as a human being, a man, surveying the walls of Israel's great city. As Amos approached, God stretched out an arm and without turning, let a small, heavy piece of metal fall from his hand. And it stopped, suspended on a string. What do you see, Amos? Asked the voice. A plumb line, answered the prophet, trying to unravel the divine riddle. Indeed, the voice said. A plumb line, a simple carpenter's tool by which one might tell if a structure is standing upright. Thoughtfully, God held the plumb line to the wall, and it was grossly off kilter. I'm coming, Amos, said the voice, and with this plumb line, I am going to measure my people Israel. I will no longer excuse their atrocities. And God turned towards Amos, and Amos awoke. As Amos dreamt, Israel was enjoying a level of political and economic prosperity it had never known and would never know again. By any national standard, they were abundantly successful, clearly favored and blessed by God. Should one want to suffer a journey under the veneer, however, one would find that the foundation was rotten. A different, more honest story ached to be proclaimed, and this was the story that Amos, a poor farmer with no credentials but his experience of God, rode north to uncover. You sell the righteous and the needy 
for silver and a pair of shoes, Amos proclaimed, a walking apocalypse in the city's heart. In your race to the top, you trample the head of the poor into the dust. As you climb the ladder to get yours, you push the disabled out of your way. In your empty quest for pleasure, you regard women as mere objects. In your hollow grabs for power, you take bribes that turn justice into a joke. And then when anyone dares tell you what you've done to them, you silence them, you doubt them, you discredit them, and you spin things until they are the villain. And on top of all that, Amos continues, Week after week, you're going to dress up in your finest clothes, march into God's sanctuary as if nothing was wrong, and drink wine you can only buy because of the taxes you put on the back of people who can't afford it. You're going to march into that sanctuary as if everything was fine and sing for God to come into your midst and save you from your troubles? Well, then let me ask you a question, Israel. Are you sure? Are you sure that's what you want? Just so we're clear, you steal children's land, you cut off their voices, you take away their freedom and their sustenance, and now you're going to invite the father of those children to come into your house? How do you think that's going to go exactly? I'll tell you how it's going to go. It's going to be like somebody was running away from a lion and ran into a bear. It's going to be like somebody went inside to escape the heat and sat on a snake. You want God, Israel? Well, you've got it. The Father is coming, plumb line in his hand. You think you're doing all right? You think this is success? Well, I guess we'll see. The way Amos tells it, the success of Israel suddenly doesn't look that successful, does it? So here we are again, the, the poor stories exposed for what they are, and we have to ask one more time, how do we measure the success of a community of faith? Where is that plumb line exactly against which we are all to look at ourselves? If the prophet's story is to be believed, then in spite of all temptations to do otherwise, we are successful only to the extent that we have truly and honestly opened ourselves to God's Holy Spirit of love. That is our plumb line. To what extent have we opened ourselves to God's Holy Spirit of love? Now, it's one thing to claim to be people of God, to say that we are open to God's spirit. In fact, I think most churches would be quick to say that. Israel probably would have been quick to say that. But as Amos points out, and as Jesus so perfectly illustrates century late, centuries later, you know a tree by its fruits. If you're walking a path through botanical gardens, and you happen across a tree with a small placard reading fig tree, but you look up to find apples hanging from its branches, you can be reasonably certain that the tree before which you stand is not, in fact, a fig tree at all. Likewise, if a community is truly open to God's spirit, they will necessarily produce certain fruits, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, self-control, but centuries before Paul named any of those fruits, Amos would name another. Justice. That is what Amos calls out. Openness 
to God's spirit will necessarily produce the fruits of justice. In Israel, there were these, these sacred places known as the high places of Isaac. And I imagine they were beautiful. They were centuries old, altars built by Isaac, the son of Israel's patriarch Abraham. Imagine for just a minute the cultural importance that they carried. Imagine how highly the people would have regarded these clearly holy places, similar to how we might regard a great medieval cathedral or the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem. But through the eyes of a prophet, eyes trained to see the plumb line fall, it's a different sight. When it comes to connecting the people to the spirit of the living God, the prophet asks, when it comes to nourishing the fruits of justice, what are these places really worth? What good are monuments to a religious system that keeps the poor poor and the rich comfortable? What good are piles of stone that keep God's beloved so focused on history they neglect the most important question? What might God be asking of me in this moment? The high places of Isaac are going to be ruined, God says in Amos' vision. The sanctuaries of Israel destroyed. And I can almost hear the priest's pitiful objection, but we spent so much money keeping those places up. Where are we going to have our festivals? Where are we going to offer our sacrifices and sing our songs of praise? Oh, child, God is unhindered in responding. I've got to tell you, I hate, I despise your festivals. I take no delight in your assemblies. You keep taking up offerings and giving sacrifices, but I'm not interested. You keep singing your noisy music, but all I hear is a clanging gong and a clashing cymbal. You have to stop. You have to be honest. You're not doing this for me. When was the last time you sang to me? When was the last time you stopped to consider what I might want? Because I'll tell you what I want. I want justice rolling down like waters. I want righteousness, ever-flowing streams of it. I want you to be a tree heavy with the fruits of justice. As we walk the paths along the garden that is our city, through the highways of our nation, and we happen across buildings with placards out front reading, church. But we look up to see fruits of anger and abuse, control, bickering, and pettiness. We can be reasonably certain that the community before which we stand is not, in fact, a church at all, but something else. You'll know a tree by its fruits. When we can gaze upward and see love hanging from its branches, justice growing from every limb, then we will know that we stand before a church. Because openness to God's spirit necessarily produces the fruits of justice. But if that's the case, it seems there are a lot of mislabeled trees out there. If the problem occurs so often and under such similar circumstances, it would be wise to speculate that there may be a systemic issue, some weakness in the very DNA of the thing. 
And indeed, if we put the story of Amos up against the stories of the other prophets, against the story of Jesus, and against the stories of our own experiences, we get a clear picture of where that weakness may be. Religion is always vulnerable to be hijacked by ego and power. This is as true of the Jewishness of Amos's time as the Christianity of our own. And when we are naive about this vulnerability, when we are quick to neglect the full canon of stories or we forget that it's there, then like termites, it will do the quick work of robbing religion of its integrity and draining it of its purpose. Religion then is no longer that which connects us, opens us to God's spirit, but a convenient tool for politicians to use to unite a tribe under the dark banner of fear. This was the dominant religion of Amos's world. And against this plumb line, it cannot stand. With sword in hand, says the God of Amos's vision, I will take down the house of Jeroboam, the king of Israel. Well, as you might imagine, that proclamation of judgment didn't really sit well with the powers that be. And the agents of the status quo were set into motion. Amaziah, a priest at Bethel, ran to scratch out a message to the king. The prophet Amos is plotting against you, wrote the great tattletale. He has the audacity to do right here in the middle of the national temple. Dear leader, your nation cannot handle his words. He may have begun as a splinter, but his cuts are growing deeper, making the poor restless and the rich angry. He prophesies the exile of our people. And then he rolls up the letter and he seals it and he sends it off before realizing that Amos has arrived at his doorstep. One preacher refers to this exchange that follows as one of the great scenes of history. It's a recurring story between the priest of the empire and the prophet of the God of justice. It's Amos and Amaziah, Jesus and the temple priests, Paul and the Sanhedrin. Look, seer, Amaziah condescends to Amos. I get it. I'm in this business too. We've all got to earn our bread. But don't you think it would be easier for all of us if you were to go earn yours back in Judah? Boy, do you know where you are? This is the royal sanctuary, the temple of the kingdom. That last line kills me. The temple of the kingdom. How many sanctuaries of God become temples of the kingdom, altars to the empire, because we have forgotten how easy it is to give up our integrity as people of God's justice, embracing instead a cheap grace, a religion of comfort and false peace, a trust in the status quo. At some point, to use the language of Martin Luther King Jr., Israel's religion had become a mere thermometer, reflecting the temperature of the prevailing cultural assumptions, utterly abandoning its call to act instead as a thermostat, setting the temperature according to God's love and justice. How often has the church found itself on the wrong side of the story because of our failure to take this vulnerability seriously? In the lifetime of this nation alone, Christian nationalism has become a tool for politicians looking to gain power and hold power under a tribe united under the banner of fear. Fear of indigenous peoples leading to genocide. 
Fear of Africans leading to slavery and segregation. Fear of LGBTQ siblings and women leading to limited rights and silenced voices. It bears the fruit of black bodies broken against the side of the highways and brown bodies locked in cages at the border. It bears the fruit of good traditional Christians united under the banner of fear chanting, send her back, about a congresswoman as thoroughly as American as they are. There's a vulnerability in the DNA of religion eagerly exploited by those seeking power or self-justification. And when we fail to take this vulnerability seriously, we lose. When we succumb to fear, the temple of God becomes the temple of the kingdom. And we become the villains for the next generation. And to this, Amos says, no. Looking Amaziah in the eye, appealing to the image of God within him, he says, we are not in the same business. I am not a priest. I'm not even a prophet or the disciple of a prophet. I'm a shepherd. I'm a farmer, a trimmer of fig trees. That's where I earn my bread, as you say. But I saw the plight of the people of Israel. I listened to their stories, and friend, I felt God's heart break within my own. I'm not here for bread. I'm here to remind the people of God who they are, of the belovedness within you that you bury with fear and greed. I've come to warn you that the story you're telling, it doesn't end well for you. Michael Ray Matthews is the current president of the Alliance of Baptists. And he often voices a question that presented itself to Amos and Amaziah and represents itself to every generation. Will we be chaplains of the empire or prophets of the resistance? Will we be a thermometer or a thermostat? And will we take seriously the threat that religion is always vulnerable to hijacking by ego and power. The story that you're telling, Amos says to Amaziah, who by all accounts believes himself shielded from suffering, it doesn't end well for you or any of Israel. If you keep on this road, your spouses will be forced to, make, to take the most demeaning work your children will fall by the sword. Your land is going to be parceled out, and you yourself will die on unclean soil. And then the rest of Israel will go into exile, far, far from its homeland. And this is the last thing Amos has to say to Amaziah before turning to take his leave. And it touches on a theme that is perhaps the most difficult for many of us to look in the eye. And that is, if the community of God should fail to produce the fruits of the Spirit, it will die. Amos's words come true. Israel falls. Its people are enslaved and led in chains to a foreign land, just like their ancestors were. But hold on here, because it's really easy to misunderstand what this means. A lot of us have been told stories about God in which God zeroes in on our immorality, judges us, and punishes us. 
It's popular to tell stories in which God is a divine disciplinarian waiting to send disaster on a disobedient people. But let me say clearly, that is not who our God is. If the story of Jesus tells us anything at all, it's that those myths are sorely flawed. Our God is the spirit of love dwelling deeply within each person, made manifest in Christ who loved so deeply and indiscriminately that he forgave even his executioners their sins. That is who God is. So when I suggest that the community of God, should it fail to bear the fruits of the spirit, will die, I'm not saying that's because an angry God is going to kill it. Here's what I am suggesting. There are a finite number of stories in this world, all of which have been told before. And it's possible to recognize when the choices of the characters are going to lead that story into disaster. Everyone watching the movie can feel it coming. Amos is not the mouthpiece of an angry, trigger-happy God, but the storyteller who points out that the choices they are making will inevitably lead them into disaster, not just individually, but as a collective. We are bound together in that inescapable web of mutuality, our stories inseparable, our choices connected. And this is no less true for the church today. If it does not open itself to God's spirit and produce the fruits of justice, the story for all of us will end in disaster. Eric Minton is a pastor and author in Tennessee. And he wrote an article last week on the declining church in the United States, particularly about how many churches are blaming entitled millennials for the state of things. The argument goes, because millennials are so entitled, they're not giving their tithes like they're supposed to, and our budgets are suffering. They're selfish, and so they don't show commitment when it comes to engaging in the ministries of the church. If only they showed the same selflessness in giving and serving the church that their forebearers did, then the church would be just as strong as it was a generation ago. But then, Minton turns that argument on its head. Instead of blaming an entitled generation, he asks the church, why do you feel entitled to continue existing? He writes, things don't get to exist simply because they already exist and have budgets and bank accounts and founding documents. So did the Roman Empire, the Branch Davidians, so did Enron. But when there are four-year-olds in jail at our border, and the Arctic Circle reaches 80 degrees. It's time to find out why exactly the world needs the unending existence of our aging fellowship hall or our sparsely populated sanctuary. Because if we don't know the answer, I'm not so sure the tithes from 35-year-olds are going to pull us out of that tailspin. He writes, when a church serves families, individuals, and whole communities with no expectation that they in turn will ensure the church's ongoing survival, that church is, perhaps for the first time, repairing the world. The choices we make, the fruits we produce, they will determine where this story goes. 
And as it was for the kingdom of Israel, it is for us. If the community of God should fail to produce the fruits of the Spirit, the story will end in tragedy. So then, how are we to measure the success of a community of faith? I trust this congregation to discern the answer well. I trust a congregation who has tasted the bitter fruits of off-kilter, hijacked religion, who knows where that story ends up, to have eyes that recognize the plumb line when it falls. But I also know that every generation, every incarnation of church must be ever vigilant in asking these questions anew, in reevaluating the way it spends its time, energy, and resources, lest one day we too be found without fruit, like the barren fig tree on the road to Bethany. Will we have the nerve to continue looking at ourselves through the eyes of the prophets? Will we foster the self-awareness to read the story of Amos and Amaziah and honestly ask ourselves in which tradition we stand? And will we trust the story of Jesus that says when we let some parts of ourselves die, there is resurrection waiting on the other side? Northminster, may we continue to open ourselves ever more fully to God's spirit, reminding us that we are unconditionally loved and teaching us to love the world well. May our roots sink deep into God's love, our branches producing the fruit of the spirit. May we resist anew the temptation to be chaplains to the empire aware of where that story invariably leads us. In all things, great and small, may the love of Christ be our plumb line and justice be our end. Amen.